Hi, I'm Ali Hassan, host of CBC's Laugh Out Loud. Do you like to laugh? Because we're serving up big laughs each week. We feature comedians from across Canada. You might already be fans of some of them, and others might be new discoveries. We record emerging comedians and established pros in front of live audiences all across the country, and we promise that you'll be literally laughing out loud. You can find Laugh Out Loud on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. If you grew up on Goosebumps or Fear Street, those series of books, you might remember walking into your library and they'd take up an entire shelf there. You might remember going to the, like the Scholastic Book Fair and you'd see these green and purple book covers and they'd have titles like Night of the Living Dummy or Say Cheese and Die or Welcome to Camp Nightmare. You, or at least I, would take these books home and then you're seven or you're eight and you're staying up all night and you're just terrified of these books, but you can't stop devouring them. And it's a good thing there are literally hundreds more stories where those came from. 30 years later, the author of the Goosebumps and Fear Street series, R.L. Stein, has not slowed down at all. R.L., or Bob, as he like me to call him, is kind of legendary for the sheer volume of writing that he does. For decades now, he's had the same routine. He gets up and writes 2,000 words every single day. Meaning that, he's 80 years old now, he's written about 350 books. The latest one is a book of advice. It's called There's Something Strange About My Brain. The advice is specifically about writing horror for kids. But I think when you listen to our conversation, you'll find that R.L. Stein, who is one of the best-selling children's authors in history, has a lot of wisdom to share. In particular, why writing from your heart is overrated. And for a guy, as I mentioned, who terrified me for most of my childhood... He's pretty funny. If you're not already subscribed to our podcast, please do so. Q with Tom Power. You want to send me an email? Q at cbc.ca is the best way to do that. Here's my conversation with R.L. Stein. Bob, how are you? Good. I'm good, Tom. Uh, nice to be here. Lo- lovely, to, lovely to have you. Have you done your writing today already? I did. I wrote this morning. Hey, it's 31 years of goosebumps now. How is that possible? How did that happen? It's wild. Working on a goosebumps book. 2,000 words this morning? Um, c- close, close. And that's been your, that's been the pattern for how long now? Well, I used to be twice as fast. I'm old now. I used to, <laughs> I used to do, um, 4,000 a day. 4,000 words? No, I, you know, I, I work now, my writing hours are from 10 to 1 every day. I, those are good hours, right? You'd kill for those hours. Yeah, I would. Yeah. But I used to write from 10 to 4. So like a day job, like a normal day. Yeah, like in factory work. Yeah, it's the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you do, it's like piecework. You do your words every day, you come back and you do more words. The, in the new book, you write that if you want to be a writer, you have to be driven to write. It should be a compulsion. How early did that compulsion start for you? I guess I was nine. Actually, before I answer that, yeah, I think I was nine. I was talking, I was at a thriller writers convention and I was talking to a Lee child and he said, how long can you go without writing? And I said, oh, I can go maybe eight days, maybe 10 days without writing. And he said, it's an addiction. It's just an addiction. 
And I, my started when I was nine years old, I dragged this typewriter into my room and I'd be there all afternoon typing joke books, typing little comic books, typing stories. Why? I have no idea why. Why did I think it was so interesting? But here I am. I'm still doing it. What do you make of authors? You talk in the book about your friend um, Harlan Coben, another really successful writer. And he talks about how he has to force himself to, to write. What, yes. what, do you, what do you make of authors like that? I don't know if he's kidding or not. Harlan and I did an evening at Barnes & Noble here in New York. And we talked about writing. I mean, we've been friends for a long time. But uh, it's the first time we ever really talked about writing. And he everything he said was the opposite of me. <laughs> everything. I look forward to writing every morning. It's like the best hours of my day. And he says, I have to curse myself out. I have to hit myself. I have to force myself. I have to go out to a restaurant and work. I have to... Uh, I. I don't know. He's, he certainly has a good output, doesn't he? I've heard you talk about how when you were young, growing up in Ohio, you came from a family that didn't have a lot of money. And we would talk to... No, we were very poor. Yeah, very, very poor. And that is... I mean, I mean I'm interested in exploring that compulsion to writing and why writing. But I've heard you talk about how growing up poor is... Uh, what kind of pushed you towards writing? Can you tell me more about that? Well, I only because we lived on the edge of a very wealthy community. I lived three doors from the railroad tracks, but two blocks from our house was the Ohio governor's mansion and a whole street of mansions. So I grew up, most of my you know friends and people in school were upper middle class and higher. And we were really poor. I had to wear my cousin's clothes to school. And I so I think I felt like an outsider from a very young age. And I think that's why I liked being in my room writing. I was this outsider. But I could, like, write about things and comment. But I wasn't really part of the group. Because you were kind of poorer than everybody else in your community, you felt sort of detached from from everybody else, and you could you didn't really fit in. But when you were writing, you could kind of create these worlds where you well, did I fit could, in. I could use my writing to fit in. I even when I was like fourth grade, fifth grade, I would write these little magazines. I would put these magazines together, and I'd bring them into school and pass them around to everyone. That was my way of getting attention. People always ask me, they say, Bob, was there a teacher, a special teacher who encouraged you to write? And I always have to give the exact wrong answer, which is they begged me to stop. The teacher would say, Bob, please stop bringing these in. Bob, please, please stop. Because it was, you know, a disruption, I guess. But I've often thought if these teachers didn't beg me to stop, maybe I would have. <laughs> You were you, you were a little defiant. Well, yes. <laughs> what were those? What were those things you were passing around the school about? Like, what were you writing about? They were like joke books. They were comic books. I loved Mad Comics, Mad Magazine. I loved it, and uh, I tried. You know, I was doing my own funny stuff. You know, I've always just been funny. I never planned to be scary or anything. My ambition in life was to have my own humor magazine. And I did that. I had a magazine at Scholastic for kids called Bananas for 10 years. It was my own mad magazine. 
even though you weren't, your, your goal wasn't to write scary things, your goal was to write funny things, I have heard you talk about how you were sort of a fearful, kind of a, a fearful kid, right? I was. I had the kind of parents who, you know, terrify you. They don't want you, don't climb that tree, you'll break your leg. Don't go swimming, you'll drown. Don't do that. I had those kind of parents. And I grew up very fearful of a lot of things. But and, and I, again, I think that's why I love being in my room, you know, creating my own worlds. Does being a fearful kid like that allow you to channel that into the stories you ended up writing? Later. It's a horrible way to be a kid. It's not a fun way to be a kid. But when I started writing Fear Street and teen horror and Goosebumps, I could think back and I could remember that feeling of panic. I could remember what it felt like, and I could try to bring that to my stories. So it turned out to be lucky in a way. Bob, I was really fascinated by something I read in the book. So in in your book of writing advice, you say, don't quit your day job, find the right one. And for you, that right day job was making up celebrity interviews at a movie magazine. Can you tell me about that? This was my first job in New York. I came from Columbus. I had to get a job. Uh, this woman on 96th Street, she had six movie magazines that she had to fill every month. And there were three of us writers who worked for her. And we had to make up interviews with the stars to fill up her magazine. This is my first job. And I'd come in in the morning and she'd say, do an interview with Jane Fonda. <laughs> Do an interview with Diana Ross. Now hold on, like you'd make up you'd make up the questions and the answers? Everything. Everything. Maybe you'd have a little clip from somewhere else. No, we just made it up. It was a very creative job. And this was, you know, do an interview with the Beatles. And I'm sitting there, type, type, type. I'm interviewing the Beatles. This was before People magazine, and I think before celebrities really cared what you wrote about them. They just wanted to be written about. You know, everything changed after People magazine, I think. Do, do you remember when, any of the things you wrote about these people? Any of the answers that you, any of the words you put no, in these celebrities' mouths? I don't remember mouths? headlines. I don't remember. She said, um, one morning I came in and she said, do an article, those whispers about Tom Jones aren't true. And I wrote the article for the magazine, what, you know, made up something. And then she said that after she said, now do another article, those whispers about Tom Jones, they're true. <laughs> and so I wrote the other side of it for another ma different magazine. It was a great job. It didn't last very long. But it was. A, I learned how to write really fast, and I learned how to make up stuff. I love I love the story about how, because I think if, you, if you're following our, our tack up to this point, it's it's the story of you becoming a humor writer. It's the story of you becoming a, a joke book writer. It's the story of you becoming a, a comedy magazine editor. The story about how you ended up writing scary books that you that you tell in this book blows my mind because it's just an editor kind. Well, can you tell can the story? Tell the, yeah, tell, tell the story. Tell it. Tell it. Yeah, tell it. I told the real story. <laughs> Everything ever happened to me happened by accident, and that's a an embarrassing story that it wasn't my idea to be scary. That's embarrassing. But I was having lunch with this woman at Scholastic, Jean Fywell. She was the publisher or editorial director or something. We were good friends. Yeah. And she showed up for lunch angry. She'd had a fight with a guy who wrote teen horror. 
And she said, this was back in the 80s. She said, I'm never working with him again. You could write a good teen horror novel. Go home and write a book called Blind Date. She even gave me the title. And I was at this point in my career where I never said no to anything. You just say yes, right? I said, oh, sure, no problem. I didn't know what she was talking about. What's a teen horror novel? And I went running to the bookstore and I bought books by Christopher Pike and Lois Duncan and Diane Hull and Richie Tankersley Cusick, all these people who were writing teen horror back in the 80s. And I read their books so I could find out what they were doing. And then I tried to figure out what I could do that would be a little bit different. And this book came out a year later, Blind Date. It was a number one bestseller on the Publishers Weekly bestseller list. I've never been close to that, you know, with my funny stuff. And a year later, she asked me to do one. I did a teen horror novel called Twisted. And it was number one bestseller. And I said, forget the funny stuff. Come on. Kids like to be scared. And I've been scary ever since. But it is embarrassing that I didn't think of it. Why is it embarrassing? Because you shouldn't. I should be able to say, I've loved horror all my life. It's my pleasure. I love scaring kids. I'm like, you know, I'm really into horror and I've always been. I can't believe I get to write what I love. That's what I should be saying. But I think it's a more realistic way of approaching the arts in some ways is that a lot of our careers in our, I mean, listen, I never dreamt of doing interviews for my entire life. But, you know, one one of these days I, you know, I got brought in and I, someone was sick and I got to guest host something. And then all of a sudden, I, you know, I, I, I get this gig. Yeah. It's, it's a more realistic way of how these things actually yeah, turn we out. All, you know, we all end up by accident. My only advice to kids, my only advice is always say yes to everything. <laughs> Just say yes to everything. I was at a meeting. It was a meeting of 350 top high school students. And a boy got up and he said, well, I'm forming my own company as soon as I get to college. And then I'm going to work on it. And after five years, I'm going to take my company public. And then after I take my company public, I'm going to sell the company. And I thought, oh, is this kid in trouble? Is this kid in trouble? And I tried to say, everything that's going to happen to you is not, that's not going to be it. Everything that happens is an accident or some coincidence, something else. Don't think you're going to end up where you think you're going to end up. When, when Blind Date goes to number one. And I remember Blind Date. We were talking about this earlier, yeah. our producer Vanessa and I, because like, I grew up reading Goosebumps. And I remember there was just this other shelf of R.L. Stein books that I wasn't ready to read yet that seemed yes. very salacious and shelf. yeah, very grown up and sexy. And they didn't seem like they were. I'm still afraid right. to read it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've never, My mom still won't let me read it. Uh, uh, but, but when when that goes to number one and you realize that, like, not only is my horror writing good, it's marketable. And it's, I mean, number one's not nothing. That's not like number five or number 30 or number 50. Like, what, yeah. what goes through your mind? Well, I didn't know if it was any good or not. I just knew that it sold like crazy. And that was like a shock, first shock to me. You know, I had no idea what, what was coming with Goosebumps. Because is it then like okay, the teen horror is doing well. Let's go. Let's go younger. Let's let's go Goosebumps. No, that's another embarrassing story. Because I I my I didn't want to do Goosebumps. 
because I didn't want to mess up my Fear Street audience. <laughs> That's the kind of businessman I am. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. And my editors, um, my wife and her partner, they have a company called Parachute Press, and I was doing these books through them. Yeah. And they kept after me and said, no one has ever done a horror series for 7 to 12-year-olds. It's never been done before. We should try it. And I said, no, no, thanks. I don't, I really don't want to do it. And they kept after me and kept after me. And finally, I said, all right, if I can think of a good name for the series, we can try two or three. You want to hear how we came up with the name? Yeah. One day I was reading this magazine, TV Guide, and it used to have all the program listings in the middle. Yeah. And there was a tiny ad down at the bottom. It said, it's Goosebumps Week on Channel 11. And I just, they were showing scary movies. And I just stared at it. And my joke is, I always say, it's perfect. We'll call it Channel 11. <laughs> that's a horrible joke. Don't laugh at that. No, I like it. I like it a no, lot. I like yeah, it a lot. It's a terrible joke. <laughs> no, that's where the name Goosebumps came from, that little ad. Uh, Bob, so I got to tell you, you're, you're really dispelling the idea of like the solitary tortured author going into a... I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that at all. This is just fun. I, that's part of what it says in my book, Something Wrong with My Brain. Is it, I, you know, I'm, on, I'm always on these writer panels, and there's always some author who gets, you know, says, writing is so hard, writing is hard, I have to lock the kids in the garage so I have time to write, I have to I have stay up. For, I think writing's not hard. <laughs> it's not hard. I hate that. I, you know, you don't have to wear a hard hat. There's no heavy lifting. You're in there having fun. You're creating your own people, your own worlds. The other thing I hate, I hate when authors go into schools and they speak to the school, they do an assembly, and they say, write from your heart. Write what, write what you know. Always write from your heart. Those kids will never write another word. Why? <laughs> They'll never write another word. Because I've written 350 books, believe it or not. Not a single word from my heart. <laughs> That's the truth. Hold on. So if not, not from your word. heart, then from, from where, Bob? From, from wanting to entertain people. From wanting to have fun and wanting to entertain people with my writing. You have to tell kids. You don't, you don't have to write from your heart. You're saying that it doesn't need to be this labored, emotional, soul-bearing experience. It doesn't have to come from deep within. It can just be fun. You develop your skills. You develop writing skills. You figure out what people like and what's fun for them, and you deliver it. You entertain. I, books are for entertainment. There was always this rule in children's publishing that kids, characters in a children's book always had to learn and grow. That was a strict rule. And I thought, why? Yeah. I don't read books where the characters have to learn and grow. Why can't kids read books, too, where they're just entertained, where they just have fun reading? And that's what I've always tried to do. I want to come back to that a little bit later. But but first, I want to talk a little bit about when, when Goosebumps starts, you know, blowing up and people start... Um, People start like looking at your work and start talking a little bit about your work. And one of the things you say is that it's really important that your work be relatable to kids. Talk to me a little bit about what that means, like relatable. I mean, you know, you don't talk down to them. You have to keep up with their culture. 
so you don't sound like some old man trying to be hip. But the main <laughs> thing about Goosebumps, right. really, that's you don't, a hard yeah, you, part of the You don't job. want to be saying they're playing tiddlywinks or, you know, yeah, talking about <laughs> Eisenhower or something like that. I get it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's bad enough. Some of the earlier books, I got kids walking around with Walkmen. <laughs> you know, that all changes. Terrible. But um, the main thing about Goosebumps is that it's not challenging in any way. It's so easy to read and get through. Kids don't learn anything by reading Goosebumps. They don't. They learn nothing. Maybe just to run, run away. Can you tell the story of, so you, one of the ways you try to keep things relatable is you try to make sure you keep up on like the names that are happening right now. So you take the names from, from your son's class and start putting them into the books. Can you tell that story? Well, this was a while ago. I had, I need a lot of names because every Goosebumps book starts all over again with a whole new cast of characters. I need like five or six names per book. And I had my son's um, school directory. So I just went through, that was the easiest way to find names. And I just went through, get, I used every kid in his school. Now, my son's claim to fame, you probably heard me tell this. This too. is the one I want to hear. Yeah, I love this one. Oh, his claim to fame is he never read one of my books. Oh, no, I was talking about, he wasn't he selling spots yes. in the book? Yeah, he was. He wouldn't read them, but he would come home and he'd say, Dad, you have to put James in the next one. Dad, you have to put Pam. And they were paying him 10 bucks to be in a Goosebumps book. He was cashing in, but he never read one. Why didn't he read one? Because I'm dad. He knew how to make me nuts. Every I think every writer's kid knows that the best way to get your parent is not to read their stuff. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut's daughter, Lily Vonnegut, was 12. And she was um, a huge Goosebumps fan. So I got to know her and I got I got to know Kurt. And Lily, she wouldn't read him for anything. And he was Kurt Vonnegut. She wouldn't read his stuff. You you understood you and Kurt could empathize in those moments. We're, yes, we definitely could. It's a natural way for an author's kid to separate themselves. That's some of the theme song to the TV show version of Goosebumps. I can't tell what I love more from that part of the conversation. One, um, R.L. Stein friends with Kurt Vonnegut. Two, uh, Lily Vonnegut didn't read Kurt Vonnegut's work. And R.L. Stein's son didn't read his own work. More of my conversation with the legendary author R.L. Stein after this on Q. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. The other thing I hate, I hate when authors go into schools and they say, write from your heart, write what, write what you know, always write from your heart. Those kids will never write another word. I've written 350 books, believe it or not, not a single word from my heart. 
I mean, if that's not surprising advice from a best-selling author, I don't know what is. I'm Tom Powell. You're in the middle of my conversation with the legendary children's author R.L. Stein, the creator of some of the best-selling books on Earth, like Goosebumps series, Fear Street series. R.L., or uh, Bob, as you asked me to call him, is genuinely one of the most unique and kind of refreshing authors that you'll ever hear a conversation with. What I mean by that is that he's got this new book of writing advice out. It's called There's Something Strange About My Brain. And today he's been um, dropping some really surprising and hot takes on his profession. For a guy who's been writing for children and teenagers his entire life, it's pretty interesting to hear like an adult conversation about the craft, including what he thinks about critics. Take a listen. I feel like I have a conversation on uh, this show a fair amount with people who write like genre work, people who write mysteries, people who write thrillers, people who write horror. I mean, um, a lot of those authors are often like looked down upon in so-called literary circles. Have you felt that kind of snobbery towards you in your experience? Oh, I don't know. That never bothered me. Uh, there was a... Um... A columnist, a book columnist years ago at the New York Times. Yeah. Who said, Well, if you're so successful, why are you still writing children's books? That was an interesting attitude. Like, why are you still at the children's table? Yeah. So big. <laughs> that that was kind of offensive. What do you think is behind that? Just snobbery. Just snobbery. But, you know, people who criticize mystery writers and thriller writers, in some part, they're envious because the book sales are so good. People love those books. Look at romance books. Look at that industry. It's incredible. You know, and you can put down romance writers, but look how many people they're entertaining and how many people love them. Same with you, man. Now, I got to be old, so I'm an icon. I used to get, and I never got awards or anything, but now they say, oh, the beloved Goosebumps author. That's because I got to be old. You never. <laughs> I'm one step away from national treasure. <laughs> and you know what's one step after that? What's that? Death. <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm, you know I'm right. <laughs> and then you're the late legendary R.L. Stein. Yes, that's right. It never bothered you when you were coming up that you weren't getting all those book awards and, and literary no, awards? No, I didn't and all that care about that. No? No. I just want, I wanted to come to New York. I was this high, Ohio kid. I wanted to write stuff, and I wanted to be famous. That's really all I care about. Really? I didn't care about, you know, money was not that interesting. I always wanted to be famous. I, why? I don't know. I've never been shrunk, so I couldn't tell you. <laughs> That's an interesting but motivation, why do I Bob. Keep you know, going? I'm 80 years old. Why do I keep going? I love being famous, and I just love—I I just love the idea that people like what I do so much. You—you you must know that my entire generation learned how to read novels by reading Goosebumps. Like it's almost a yeah, got, universal. Th lucky. You know what I mean? I got real lucky. We got all the—we got the '90s kids. That's—it is luck, you know, Tom. <laughs> This whole thing is luck. If we just hit on something, at one point, I'm and I don't, you know, I hate bragging. At one point in the 90s, 93, 94, we were selling four million books a month. Four million goosebumps books a month. It was incredible. I love the 90s, I'll tell you. 
it was amazing. And we just, I, just this lucky thing. And we hit this generation all over the world, not just here, not just in U.S. or Canada or whatever. You know, it was enormous in France and they hate everything American. It was huge over there in Italy. And it was just one of these lucky things. But outside of sales, like, you also just taught a lot of us, like, how to read novels. <laughs> well, that's good. I, you know, you don't, re- don't really think about that when you're writing this stuff. It was really, when parents would come up to me and say, my kid never read a book in his life, and I caught him last night reading a Goosebumps under the covers with a flashlight. Right? So, you know, you, you don't stop to think about that when you're writing books. And then so many people came up and sang, my kid learned to read, you know, that's, that's the whole point of it. That's what makes it so wonderful. But that, but that being said, you were saying earlier, hey, like my books don't have, uh, kids books often, or books that are aimed towards kids often have to like teach lessons or teach some kind of morals. And I never wanted my books to do that. I can see nodding and I can see, but, but I want to talk about a friendship you have. Like you've done a few children's story books with Mark Brown, who's the creator of Arthur. I've had Mark on the show before. Can I say this? Very cuddly and full of lessons and full of morals. Very different from your style. Like, what do you guys talk Mark about when you're together? Mark is very different from me. Mark, yeah. Mark's a very sweet guy. <laughs> well, we do interviews together, and he does all the nice answers. I was on... <laughs> I'll tell you the story. I was on the Today Show here in New York. Jenna Bush <clears throat> was came to my apartment. I shouldn't tell you the story. Anyway, Jenna Bush came to my apartment. And she was interviewing me. And she had interviewed Mark Brown like three weeks before. Yeah. And she said, Bob, I know you've learned a lot about horror from your writing. What have you learned about love? And I said, Jenna, that's a horrible question. That's the worst question anybody ever asked me. I said, if you had asked Mark that question a few weeks ago, he would have given you a wonderful answer. You'd be in tears. I don't have any answer for that. Terrible. That didn't make it onto the show. Why Why was it such a bad answer? Well, Mark's a sweet guy. Why was it such a bad question for you? I would have no clue how to answer that. And what could these books possibly teach me about love? I would think I because you, I have no clue. I would think because you off you you guys have you're not just pals who you know play baccarat yeah, together. Yeah. You've written songs together. You've written songs. You've written books together and maybe songs. Yeah. I would yeah. have thought you might have some kind of like you know common language, some you know some commonalities between you. Well, we do. We like each other. We enjoy being with each other, and we love working. I love working with him and love going on book tours with him. We have a great time. But what? <laughs> But why are you looking at me? Why? <laughs> because you're the just because you're the evil side of Mark Brown is what you're essentially telling yes. me. Yes. Right. I told Jack Black in the Goosebumps movie. Yeah. Jack was my evil twin. <laughs> he was. Um, let me let me close off by asking you this. Uh, there's a rule you've said that you have to have for yourself as a writer, which is always to try and have a, a happy ending. I, I can tell you're not the most, you're not, you're, you don't have a great truck for sentimentality. That being said, when you do look back on your career and the legacy you have in pop culture and in, in readers like the folks listening to this, come on, what, what makes you the happiest looking back on this, on this thing? Uh, just all the kids who learn to read from it. It makes me happy. The mail is wonderful. Just meeting all the kids, having 1,500 people come to the library, that part of it, it's all really wonderful. 
Well, Bob, I got to tell you, it's a, it's a great joy to get a chance to talk to you. And, and thanks for making the time, man. Oh, I enjoyed it, Tom. I realized listening back to that, I stole a line at the end of that uh, from, um, you ever seen Norm MacDonald's last appearance on David Letterman? It's like my, one of my favorite things on, on the internet. And he, I stole that line. I just realized that. Uh, he says to Dave, he says, you know, Mr. Letterman has no truck for the sentimentality, no truck for the sentimental. He's not one for the mawkish. R.L. Stein is the best-selling author behind the Goosebumps and Fear Street books. He's got a new book out on how to write scary stories for children. It's called There's Something Strange About My Brain. You can find it now through D'Angelo Publications. That's it uh, for this episode of Q. The other episode we put up today on our podcast is my conversation with the Ottawa actor Vanessa Morgan, who, in talking about this new CBC show, CBC show called Wild Cards, she tells me a little bit about what it was like to star in that show Riverdale. And how she got, I think she just, to her it wasn't that big a deal, but to me it was. She got death threats for something her fictional character did. She got real life death threats for it. And we'll talk a little bit about that. All right, go check that out. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.